Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, my name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast are Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other fine publications. John Quinn, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. Folks, how are each of you doing today, and are you all ready for the holidays? No. Very good. <laughs> Still some wrapping to do. <laughs> I, I, I say so you're not, you're not into the whole you know virtual gift card. That's how I kind of met you know I kind of weasel out out of that activity. I could do it right at the last second. You know I I'll sometimes jazz it up, but maybe a different type of um, you know online gift card. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm Ebenezer Scrooge when it comes to being creative around gifts. You know. I like that uh, chance of being in the store, the last minute, the last day panic. I like that. You like that? Well. Yeah. You know, the thing. well, let me, uh, I'm going to have to bring up the slides here. And here we go here. Let's this is going to be a fun, I'm, I'm preparing the audience. This is going to be a fun, <laughs> fun discussion because we really haven't talked about our, our hero. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure John, you've gone to his. Um, what a flattering uh, picture you picked of Moscow. I'm sure you've been to his Christmas party, you know, <laughs> and you got to tell us about that maybe on a different podcast, but. Here's the question I got to ask you guys because so much has happened over the last four or five weeks with these Twitter files. Before we get into the Twitter file stuff, the substance of that itself, you're three esteemed journalists. I, I respect and trust all of you. I, I guarantee you, I won't delete that from the recorded version of the podcast. <laughs> Why isn't the Twitter files as a topic getting more traction? Just to report on it. I mean, I mean, now, again, I don't, I don't think you guys have been shy. Rob, I've seen your tweets uh, <laughs> on Twitter about this. But just, so I'm not talking about yourselves, but why is the media, and I'll start with Stuart, seeming to not want to be – it's not really interested in this topic. They're interested in, in, his, in, um, in uh, Elon Musk's shenanigans, you know, so-called shenanigans with his online polls where they should stick around as a CEO or not. But what, isn't this topic relevant, what, what the, 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 the Twitter stuff is kind of le- – the files are leading up to? I'm sure. the wrong person to start with because no, I simply I'm happy to chime in. I As you're talking Washingtonian here. What's that? No, let's start with Stuart, then we'll kind of we'll 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 lean into <laughs> we'll lean into the other guys. I, I simply couldn't care less. I, I I don't I think the last time I was on Twitter was for Paul McCartney's 80th birthday, and I just wanted to see the birthday wishes to Paul. I just find Twitter such a toilet bowl of communication it's like turning on the radio and get every radio talk radio station at once it's populated by largely unfiltered largely uninformed narcissists who who write texts that lack context nuance or empathy and i just find it perfect for this short attention span violent shoot first ask questions later look at me society i just i've had i've just had enough of it. I've just had enough of it. So the question for me is why isn't why people aren't aren't caring more about the Twitter files? It's, it's like why should we care? It's a private company. They can do whatever they want. 
and they don't need to be transparent, as Musk has clearly shown. Um, they can do whatever. They're not a government agency. So how they do things in the background, I just don't see why this is a, you know, I don't understand why Megan and Harry are of such great interest. But it's just, I just, Neither. I couldn't care about Okay, so, so Stuart, so I'll chalk you up in the department that the coziness between, uh, let's say, the FBI and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Twitter before the company went, you know, they were, they were purchased. All that act- activity is before they went private. You know, they still are a, pri- a private company, but they're a publicly tra- they were a publicly traded stock. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that you know that, and maybe John, because you, you've written for the New York Times, if if the New York Times, the FBI, and and by the way, I know that the the government goes to newspapers all the time when there's sensitive information, there's stories that might put people at risk, but most of the time it's an adversarial relationship. I mean, I, I reflect on a specific story back, um, and Rob, you'll know about this story when. The, um, the New York Times was going to run a story um, on the morning of the uh, of the day of the speech that Kennedy was going to give during the Cuban Missile Crisis, essentially articulating you know why they were going to put a quarantine and history. We all know what happened there. And the New York Times was going to run that story. And JFK personally called the publisher um, of the New York Times and got him to agree to hold off on the story for 24 hours. And even then, even then, that was a very uncomfortable request. You know, frankly. So, and the fact of the matter here, in this particular situation, the FBI knew the substance of the Hunter Biden laptop was real. It wasn't like, well, they had not had, they hadn't had any chance to really evaluate what the contents was. And it it just seems that there was a concerted effort to keep that topic under wraps and discredit it. So, John, let me go with you because I raised the New York Times. I talked about, get me, get me. The first thing is, Twitter's not a media company, right? So they're not journalists. They're not. They don't have. They don't have to follow any kind of precepts or supposition, um, or pretend that they are journalists. So they don't really have that um, cachet. The other thing is, when Elon Musk just goes and completely lies about what's in those files, that's a problem. So with the FBI thing, he's well. The FBI is censoring. Has paid Twitter to censor materials. And of course, that's not what they did at all. That was just a bald faced, right straight up intentional lie, right? All they did was they paid for the search features that they pay. Google does the same thing. Facebook does the same thing. When they have these warrants and requests for information, it takes a lot of work to sort through stuff to deliver what is, you know, through a warrant even that they have to deliver. And they get paid for that. They get reimbursed for that. Just the same way if we go and get a Freedom of Information Act request, we have to pay for it. It's not free, right? So it's not... So Elon Musk, when he just completely blatantly out and out lies about something like that, then it's like, well, that's why people aren't paying any attention to the Twitter files. And it's also because it's a press release. It's not files. It's not the Pentagon Papers where they took it and printed them all and you could buy it in the bookstore. Remember the bookstores... (laughs) It feels funny saying that, but you could buy it. Anybody could buy it. Any person in in America could buy the Pentagon Papers. That's not what Elon Musk is doing. This is just a press release from him with some redacted stuff to a couple of specific people. And I think that's, by the way, I think that's a reasonable argument. I mean, even people who are very um, sensitive to this topic have said, you know, know, trying to wrap your hands around it in a drip, drip by drip fashion 
it's really not the way you know you can evaluate the the the, uh, the value or the accuracy of, of the content. Now, having said that, you know I, Musk was I think smart enough to have a couple of really high profile, well respected uh, journalists. Um. I Mike, I'm not sure about. Well, well, other people might be two different things, but uh, you know, I, I, I guess what? Uh, listen, everything you guys are saying, and we haven't even gotten to Rob yet. Is, I, I get it. I understand that, but I just don't understand that, that the fact that you just that it's not being reported on. I mean, what we just talked about has gotten very little visibility. And it's a reasonable point for you guys to take. I get it, you know. But the coziness of the relationship, I think, concerns me concerns me a bit and others a bit. And I just think that it requires more awareness, you know. And the fact that they're not covering it, in, and, and it's a dramatic. I mean, I, I saw a slide the other day where the major networks de uh, dedicated zero minutes to it. And the only channel that's obviously covering it, and you know who it is. Um, they have spent quite a bit of story on it. And it, it just seems... I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm just surprised that people are not reacting with more. You know, even if we could defend Twitter around, the, around it, given the points you just made. So go ahead, uh, Rob. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, go, go, go for it. Here. Number one, this has been an absolutely ham-handed attempt at any sort of PR campaign. Pro tip: If you have breaking news, you don't drop it at six o'clock p.m. on a Friday. That never works. Uh, <laughs> number two there hasn't actually been a whole lot of news. I have read every one of these threads. And by the way, a 60 tweet Twitter thread is itself not gripping reading for normal people. Normal people won't go more than five tweets in a thread. Right. Um, the first bunch, the Hunter Biden laptop, we know it was a panicked reaction. We know everyone was looking for more Russian hack and leak operations because that's what they did in 2016. Everyone was saying, watch out for it, watch out for it. And the Trump administration deciding, the, the campaign deciding to have Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> who had already torched his reputation, be the, you know, the, the herald of this, you know, that didn't help at all. I thought it was bogus. Uh, number three, Twitter realized in real time pretty much that they screwed up. The next day they reversed it. They spent pretty much every day since apologizing for it. So there's no news there. Um, and yeah, the subsequent ones, yeah, there's not a whole lot we didn't already know. A lot of it is devoid of context. And the presentation struck me. The whole notion that Twitter was being unfair to President Trump after January 6th is offensive to me as a Washingtonian <laughs> who heard the sound of pretty much every police siren in the D.C. area heading into the city on that day. He was not just any user, not just any president. It was unprecedented. Of course, they were scrambling. And even in what they have posted, you can see that the trust and safety professionals were trying to puzzle this out. Is this actually really election disinformation? What's going on? Uh, as for coziness between the FBI and Twitter, I don't know about that. You can argue. Oh, come on, Rob. At least, can, at least can see that. any government agency yeah. be suggesting, here's a list of accounts we want you to check out. But by and large, they don't, they don't accept most. And you can see this. This is Twitter's <laughs> transparency report. Uh, Demands for account removal. The compliance rate in the U.S. from July to December of 2021, 40.6%. So the government is striking out most of the time, which, of course, is in nowhere in that thread. Uh, the most recent one alleging that Twitter has been soft on U.S. government propaganda accounts targeted towards the Middle East 
that had some actual news. It was also the only one involving someone who's done real investigative journalism relatively recently, Lee Fong of The Intercept. That had some interesting stuff. Plus, you can read it on The Intercept site as an actual story start to finish. Uh, that's interesting. And it does point to a case of Twitter not enforcing its own rules because the government said, right. can you go easy on these accounts? But by and large, yeah, far less informative than the breathless narration of some of this, much less Musk's deeply dishonest characterization of it. And the other factor, of course, perhaps we're a little more focused on what Musk is doing to Twitter right now, which is flying the plane into the side of a mountain. If he wants people to focus on it, maybe he should shut up, stop making news by kicking journalists off for no reason, making up a completely ridiculous privacy policy to protect the privacy of his jet. It's ridiculous. Uh, he's got nobody to blame but himself. And, and just as a corollary to this, the, the sh shadow banning stuff that that doesn't, especially with the that great uh, Barrington uh, report that was articulated by that um, uh, that doctor. Every social network is set as an intermediary step between removal or doing nothing. We can lower the visibility of things. Shadow banning is a way to make it sound scary. It's a standard take technique. They've said they've done it before. And for that matter, COVID disinformation, that was a public policy they had. Right. So I am not sympathetic except at all we, towards except we now know that, many advice that was uh, going to get people killed <laughs> finding they had less visibility. Right. Tough. But except we now know that some of the provisions uh, of the policies that the U.S. government put in place during COVID are getting, and I'm being charitable when I say this, are getting second looks. I mean, in terms of social distancing, masking, the effectiveness of We're the saying Twitter and Don't get me wrong. You guys know that I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I've taken the vaccine twice. I've gotten the booster. I'm not one of those type of folks. But it sounds like scientific debate in that particular case was 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 if not suppressed was certainly muted in a very and I I think that's reason for concern. You know, I think I on, know a, on, have, a much issue, on a much yeah. larger issue, I think the issue yeah. with Twitter and all of social media is that it's an undefined as yet undefined media. It doesn't fit into any of the yes. round or square block. And as a result, there are no common rules, accepted rules of the road that have, you know, the way journalism developed over time and the way that schools have been built out of how to cover a story and get con There are just no rules of the road for social media. And as a result, everybody's playing the ball as it lies. And, and, and as a result, we can have all of these conversations, but until either the industry itself, which often happens in the come to some sort of rules of the road of them for themselves, or the government in, introduces some degree of regulation, either over the algorithm nature of the beast or the advertising. I mean, it was very funny. If you go back to the history of radio, radio was sort of in this state in the early 1920s. And there was actually a suggested government law that would ban advertising from radio. So that's, I think, where we are with social media. Nobody knows what it is, and nobody knows how to define it. And nobody knows what the rules are. So do it, do it, gee, do it, I wonder it, what happens if I agree with you 100%. There was also the specter that around the emergence of television in the late 40s, early 1950s, sure. where there were government organizations that came. And by the way, it's been around. And it was, it was, I think it was called the Hayes Commission, if I'm not mistaken, around motion pictures, where mm -hmm. when a movie was being shot, they had experts on set telling you what you could say and what you couldn't oh, say too naughty you know 
I know Rob wants that job, by the way. Yeah, same thing with video games. They, it took 13 years for the FCC to be created after the birth of radio. So these things yeah. just... It just it takes time to evolve for everybody to figure out what this beast is and how to tame it. Yeah. And that I think that's a topic I think we can agree on is that this is something, frankly, I mean, honestly, the whole argument, well, they can hide behind being a private company and they're not a, a classic news or news organization in the classic sense. That may all be true, but we all know good, better and different. That's where people are getting their news. They're getting it in large in large portion from Facebook. From, not from Facebook and YouTube, yes, not Twitter. Twitter is right. in fourth or fifth place and probably yeah. declining given recent stats. It right. has never been anything on the fourth or fifth slot. That still has it's an that's enormous still high above like cable TV or whatever. Yeah, yeah it's so. going to be dropping though. I mean, you can't link off of Twitter. I mean, the whole internet is about linking to things and to have somebody say, you know what? I just bought this company, but I don't want you to link to Facebook. I mean, wow. The most childish thing he could have done. Didn't, didn't, didn't understand it at all. By the way, Elon Jet on Facebook. Now, what am I doing? I'm following that on Facebook. Yeah, I never I'm followed it before. And, you know, so, but, well, but guys, I, I we, guys we're going to get to the it. next topic here because I, I, I had to talk about this because we haven't talked about it for some time. Right. I, and I know, Rob, you're, you're going to be heading to his, his uh, he has another Christmas party going on in downtown Washington, which I'm sure you'll be at, at that Marriott in downtown um, uh, Washington. Let, let's get to the next topic here because we could go on like this forever here. He was uh, just in Austin, though, so, you know, I don't know how he's going to get to D.C. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we've got CES 2023 coming. Um, yes. All the, <laughs> yeah, all the indications indicate that it's going to be a much more significant event from an attendance standpoint. Uh, you know, last January was kind of a joke. It wasn't kind of a joke. It was a joke uh, for those of it us. Blissfully yeah. efficient. Yeah. Yes, it was a pleasure getting – you could get an Uber ride in about two minutes, you get a, and you could walk into a restaurant without a reservation. But uh, I, the thing I want to kind of drill down to, because we're, we're going to get into a couple of specific smart home-related topics in a second, but – Let's start with Stuart. Stuart. Well, actually, let's start with Rob first, because I know Stuart will go right to the smart home stuff. Stuart, um, Rob, let's go into what topics you think are going to be big. What do you expect to see? I was just now starting once again to go through all the emails and flag for follow up because everybody thinks I have 48 hours in the day every day at CES. I know. I'm having the same problem. I have the same problem. Um, Yeah. So uh, I think... Nothing super breakthrough. Obviously, a lot of attention is being paid to smart home stuff. This will be the first CES where the matter standard, have your gadgets actually talk to each other, will be a real thing and will be an actual Hold on. Knock wood. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, I think Um, we're going to get into that detail, but outside the smart home stuff, are there any couple, two topics that you think that, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll probably will see a lot of emphasis on? Well, obviously, TVs, it's going to be interesting to me to see, you know, how much more, how is streaming video presented on them? Are any TV manufacturers going to even sort of try to nod to privacy concerns a little bit, perhaps? Um, the TV as a smart home controller, I can't get away from that. Connected autos, there's a lot of, CES has become a car show by default, and so... <laughs> There's a lot of companies there to show off their electric vehicles, their connected electric vehicles, their semi-autonomous connected electric vehicles. I think we've all sort of realized that full self-driving, oops, is not actually a thing uh, that you're going to have in the market anytime soon. But can you have the car drive itself in certain scenarios? 
to what extent can the car sort of personalize itself and bring you all these digital services, presumably for the benefit of your passengers while you're still actually paying attention to the road. Um, yeah, it was a lot of it. You never know what you're going to see. You know, last year, two of the most interesting things I saw, one of them was a self-driving tractor from John Deere. <laughs> and the other was uh, the exhibit from Sierra Space Company, which is building a winged cargo spacecraft to go to and from the International Space Station. CES contains multitudes. And as much as I like to whine about the annoying PR pitches and people who think that I have 48 hours in my day, there's a lot of neat stuff waiting. And um, yeah, if I can come up with a game the CES flu, that would be even better. <laughs> So, John, what is your technique for organizing meetings? Because I do such, you know, I use Calendly, which is a popular app for for third parties to be able to book meetings. And I'm never smart enough to tell people on one day when I'm at CES, I'm going to be at the convention center. One day, this day, I'm going to be at at the, so don't book meetings. In fact, what I should have done, and Rob, you're you're a lot smarter than me on a lot of topics. I should have. No, you are. For the most part, not about baseball, but for the most part, <laughs> I, I should have really put like 30 minute buffers between each meeting. Because as you know, if you're in one part of Vegas and you have to go to the other part of Vegas, it's an impossible task to get there in, right. in five or 10 minutes. It's, it's a 30 minute, at least a 30 minute deal. So I didn't do that. And unfortunately, I'm going to, you know, uh, the uh, number of steps I'm going to probably be putting in is going to be a big number. So, John, you know. Outside that, the preparation for it, what kind of trends do you do you expect to see a lot of emphasis on? I actually seen the automotive stuff throttle back from a few years ago. I mean, it, it used to be that I could take rides in vehicles all over the place and demos, and I've got lots of video online of actual autonomous vehicles driving through um, Las Vegas with nobody in the front seat, and uh, that's not going to be so much of a thing this year. Um, you know, they're just, they're not back up to full speed. They do have a new hall that will be almost completely full of mobility things. So in a sense, it's a, you know, a big auto show, but actually physical stuff that you can do in a car, not so much anymore. And TVs have kind of stagnated. There's, you know, micro LED is what everybody, the technology everybody's waiting for. And it's still astronomically expensive. Um, as opposed to mini LEDs, which is a different thing. Um, right. So micro LED will be is still not going to really be there. Um, a couple of you know people are also doing OLEDs, but that that's not really new. So the TVs have kind of, eh, and they're still smart TVs. They're not much smarter than they were last year. Um, I think food, you know, the appliance business will actually be stronger and more interesting there, just because of that surge from the pandemic. And we saw a lot of new devices uh, and a lot of uh, amalgamation of different technologies and single devices. So I think there'll be some interesting stuff in actually the food sector. At least I'm hoping there will be because I like the samples. Free samples. Yep. (laughs) Better than watching a TV screen. And and, and as per your strategy, the, the, the number one, a number one thing is no booth appointments. Yes. I'm sorry, but that's just like not a thing. Yeah, I know. Um, people are always like, "Well, make an appointment at your booth. You'll get there. They won't be ready. You'll be late. They'll be late, and the right. people that you want to meet won't be there." It's like, no, don't do that. Paul, Paul Fury and Pegarero are a lot smarter than I am for, for, for CEO. <laughs> many, too many years of practice. Yeah, well, not, well, I mean, and this is like number twenty-three or twenty-four for me. You know, in terms I'll be of my twenty-fifth in person. Oh, I don't crazy. even want to tell you what number it is. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, Stuart, John brought up the magic phrase for me, and we're going to get into this in a second when we talk about the smart home stuff. 
But home appliances intrigued me, especially kitchen appliances, the major uh, major kitchen appliances, and this whole promise of smart appliances that supposedly will make your life more efficient, much more productive, um, and more energy efficient. And I want to seize on that in a, in a second, get your thoughts on that, because behind my virtual screen, I have a, a brand spanking new kitchen with a, an LG smart fridge and smart dishwasher and smart oven. And what blows me away, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm currently writing a piece on this, which I'll, I'll probably publish next week, is that other than the fact that these apps will let you know that I open the refrigerator door maybe 15 times during the day and I can set the temperature remotely, which is, you know, I, my couch is 22 feet away from my um, uh, kitchen. It, it, it's still remarkably um, unproductive in terms of changing your behavior, particularly with washing clothes and, and washing your dishes, which are, by the way, that's activity that you don't have to do right away. Most people don't have to wash their dishes immediately. They can postpone the cycle uh, during to a part of the day when if you live in a state like California where the rates are lower at, um, at a particular time of day. But there is absolutely none of that connectivity in place yet. They talk about it, and I know I won't go into all the issues associated with it, but specific to that, do you have any thoughts on the whole appliance thing? Because the, uh, the appliance I mean, category... The whole, I, I, really, I, I really like appliances, even though I am not Susie Homemaker. I think a lot of the technology in appliances is really, really fascinating. But the big difference between what they call brown goods, which are an old way of referring yeah. to appliances... No phrase, goods, story. Um, phrase. White goods, I'm sorry, white goods are appliances, yeah. is that they all require human interaction, whereas other smart home devices require no human interaction at all. Things can go on and off by themselves. They don't require human beings to do anything. Whereas appliances all, all require you to put something in them or take something out of them. And so as a result, they're always going to be a different smart animal than security or, or locks or cameras or any of these things that do not require any hands-on by a human being. So that's always going to be the big difference between dumb and smart appliances. As far as I'm concerned, the best smart appliance uh, application that I've seen is the cameras inside the refrigerator. So when you're out shopping, you can actually check to see what you're out of if you forgot to check. That I find helpful, even though I haven't bought one of those things yet. Um, but I, I, but I, I think the best thing about the smart appliances are not necessarily their intelligence, but you're right. The, the energy saving and the water savings in the washers and dryers and in the dishwashers have all really ratcheted up quite a bit over the last few years. It's really now quite likely that even or possible to buy a far more efficient appliance, washing appliance, than have ever been available before. And not only are they more water and power efficient, they do a better job because of the smarts built into them that could recognize what kind of clothing, how much detergent you need to put into them, and, and those sorts of things. So I don't think they've gotten smarter from a communications point of view because there isn't much that you can talk to your appliance about. But they've gotten much more efficient power-wise. I and, agree with that. And, no, and, I, I, and I absolutely agree with that. And what, what I was kind of referring to is – these apps be much more assertive, and that's a strong word, but I mean it, in terms of trying to change human behavior to cut down, and they're not there yet. 
And as that's long as you have to put clothes in the dishwasher, as long as you have to put food in the oven, as long as you have to put clothes in the dishwasher, the there's, <laughs> there's not much they, they, they can automate. Who among us? I mean, <laughs> but he did I want to get into this last topic here because this is really important because. I, I think you just got briefed on it, Stuart, so I'm going to probably let you tee off, uh, tee off on this first. But the matter thing finally is going to be a deal. And what I mean by a deal, because it's had constant delays, we, sh I, we are going to see real products demonstrated that you could actually buy at the show. Um, the uh, standard got locked in uh, last year, but it's, I think there is, ha has been an expectation. There's been kind of a waiting for Godot type of um, effect on, on matter. But... You know, if, if there's no matter, working matter products at CES, I'm going to get back on the plane and fly back. <laughs> and then there's this new thing called the Home Connectivity Alliance, which is about, it's only about four or five months old. It got announced at IFA uh, in Germany. And that is really a, uh, a standard that's really, really, you know, really trying to address some of the stand interoperability with appliances, with home appliances. And there's other parts of it as well. But the, the questions I want uh, all of you to address, and we'll start with Stuart, is, you know, do you think matter is going to be real? And number two is, um, is there a risk that there's going to be a lot of confusion out there between, hey, what does matter do? And what is the home connectivity alliance? People, by the way, who are not in the business like we are. So, Stuart, go ahead. Well, matter is real. They actually unveiled matter version 1.0 in Amsterdam in October. Yes. And there will be between 70 and 80 exhibitors, at least at CES, either introducing, announcing, or actually demonstrating products. There are right now about 275 Matter-compatible products out there. The reason that Matter is a big deal is that all the major players are involved. Um, Alexa, Google, Apple, Samsung, LG are, are all members. They're all participating. All the products have to be compatible with at least five of these ecosystems. And legacy, including Z-Wave, including Z-Wave, among other things. Well, well, Z-Wave, you have to remember something. Alexa's talking to me now. Alexa's up. Um, she who must not be named. Yeah, she who must not be named. You have to read, have, where, what did you ask? I got sidetracked. <laughs> the, the confusion factor between... Uh, home Connectivity Alliance and oh, Matter. Nobody knows about the Home Connectivity Alliance. That has been cooking for a long time. And as we just talked about, it's com it's communications between different appliances. And we've all just talked about how stupid smart appliances are. So I don't think that's a thing. I think most people have, have either bought ho smart home products and they couldn't get them to work or work together, or they've been afraid to buy smart home products because they were afraid that they wouldn't work or work together. And this matter to a certain extent alleviates those fears. It's going to have the marketing muscle of all of these players, all of these major ecosystems are all buying into this because they all realize that it opens up the buying opportunity, the product opportunity that was closed before because people had to pick an ecosystem. The best part of matter to a certain extent is that almost all existing smart home products from these vendors will be upgradable to become matter compatible. They yes. only need enough memory to download the software, which eliminates only things like light bulbs. Yes. Almost every other smart product will have enough memory to download whatever the new versions are. So 
there are requirements within the ecosystem. For instance, every Matter compatible product has to have a barcode. So it makes pairing up with either the Alexa, Google, or Samsung, or Apple app easier. Or you can use, the product vendor can put an NFT, they can put a Bluetooth, or one of those numbers. Once you, and uh, Matter is also what they call multi-admin. So if you put all your devices in Amazon, but somebody else in your house likes using HomeKit, you can now add those same devices to HomeKit and have somebody say, hey, hey Siri, or Alexa, uh, <laughs> and have them still be controllable. Right. Um, they're, they're also writing all of these marketing materials. The major vendors are going to be handling the consumer education, the retailer education, you know, the signage, the brochures. So there's going to be a mass communication effort on this as products really start to roll out from all of these major vendors in a way that the home connectivity alliances, they're not even anywhere near that point, even if people were interested in it. So I don't think there's any confusion. I think matter is a much higher level, much larger effort for a far broader um, a variety of products. The APIs are already covered. And that's the other thing, the matter, they have APIs for each kind of smart home device, and they're going to be adding to those. There's about a dozen of them right now, and they're going to be adding another dozen over the course of, you know, as they go to matter version 1.5 or matter version 2.0. So they're adding these, they're going to be universal language. So what the attempt is to make it easier to add and easier to use and easier to combine. Uh, whether well, or not they'll succeed of that, of course, is, you know. Yeah, well, I'm, well I, and I want to flip it over to Rob here in a second. But the, the reality, is, what you said was absolutely true. I mean, the, in terms of um, the confusion around getting a, a smart home device set up pre this initiative has been significant. In fact, the number one return uh, product that returns at Best Buy, I know this for a fact, <laughs> are smart home products because people can't wow. set them up. They can't set them up. And, and and I I think that I I don't know the number I don't think the number is public but it's 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 not a it's not a low low return rate number double and uh, it's a, it's a double uh, it's a low double digit mm -hmm. number which is not mm -hmm. good at retail if you know anything about uh, retail returns which you guys obviously do and certainly the matter initiative will help that but Rob the thing I want you to speak to is that. While matter, I think, is going to be significant for matter to work in an inoperable way across multiple platforms, there's going to be certain levels of baseline functionality and then other functionality that differentiates the product. And what my concern is about matter has been over time, and we'll see um, how significant my concerns are if they're realized, is that, you know, well, you have to use the native app of a device to use a certain feature that was not a part of the API for a category of devices. And I... You know, uh, Stuart, you're shaking your head, but I don't know if that's how true that's going to be. I get different answers when I ask different people that question. So, Rob, is it supposed to work? Sorry, I'm sorry. I thought you were asking Rob. I'm asking well, Rob. I wanted a, a fact check. So, is, is the case well, there? you have to, re have to remember that that from what I understand is that the command control and connectivity are the universal languages in the API, and then the vendors can add whatever features or functionality that they want from there. Um, in, in most of these apps that I've used, when you install the app, it also installs all the capabilities of that particular device. I mean, when you install the device. So if you were to ask HomeKit and add like Lutron shades to HomeKit, once you've done that, all of those commands are transferred into HomeKit for control, 
as from both from the app and from voice control. That's the way I've been given to understand that the way that it works. In other words, the APIs cover the basic fundamental communication control and command capabilities, which includes voice command, and that you can then add any features. But once you add them, I mean, my experience certainly been with Amazon, Google, and with HomeKit is that any of those I've used when I've opened up the controls for a device that I've added to any of those, they have the full list of controls because what you're doing is that you're taking whatever the manufacturer has built into the product in terms of the application and simply transfer that into the ecosystem app. Rob, your thoughts? So what I don't know, what I'm curious about is what's the intersection of this floor of you know utility that you get with a matter device compared to other ones? Where does it intersect with the, the ceiling of what people are actually trying to do? Because I suspect with a lot of people, they may have one smart home device. Maybe they have two. Maybe it's a smart thermostat and some smart light bulbs. But those two aren't talking to each other. Uh, thermostat doesn't tell the light bulbs, hey, so-and-so is coming home. Turn on now. And, and they're okay with that. You know, they're just not trying to do these sort of complicated sequences of activities where, you know, when you're half a mile from home, lights come on, music plays, uh, Christmas lights turn on the tree, whatever, all this other stuff. And instead, it's just, what can I do with this? Will the thermostat save me money? I'll set that up. Uh, will it be convenient to have the lights, you know, by the front door turn on automatically on a schedule? That's handy. And that's as far as they go. Because even in a world of perfect compatibility where everything actually does what it should, how many people will actually take the time to sort of script their home existence so that you have all these devices blinking on and off according to your 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 calendar, your wishes, whatever. Right. But well, I think from that's what I understand, from what I've been told, because this is essentially a Zigbee base, I mean, because that's what the CSA, the connectivity, well, I can never remember the damn matter. It's the CSA, who is the matter, the matter group. Um, remember, it works on Wi-Fi, and part of the matter um, APIs is connectivity and communications. So all the devices within product groups should will be able to talk to each other. The only limitation that I was told about or that I asked about and was told was that if you've already got a macro set up in, say, Amazon, you won't be able to transfer the macro to HomeKit. You'd have to reset it up when you repair those mm -hmm. same devices to a new control app. But once you do that, those matter devices should be able to talk to each other to create mix and match macros. I believe that's right. essentially the point. Yep. Well, but, I, I just think that the, and I want to, we can only have a few minutes left. I want, I want yeah. John to chime in. What Rob is saying though, I think is accurate in that the real potential of the smart home is not using as the same command to turn us to, to act, activate as a specific device action. It's automating a series of. That's what I'm talking about. That's what a macro is. Right. Say good night. And the door locks. Yes. Whether, whether, whether it's a That's a macro. Right. And very few users are doing that today. Yes. There's the, the, the geeks like us. who will take the time over a weekend to do that, go through the trial and error process. And it ultimately turns mm -hmm. into, but the main, the mainstream consumer, who has just brought home a, um, a uh, Amazon Alexa, and they've got some smart lights. They're just fascinated with the fact that they can turn the lights on and off with a voice command. The promise and potential is much grander than that. That's the point I'm simply making. And I well, hope the, limitation, matter the limitations are going to be in the control apps, not mm -hmm. the matter 
standard or, or, or the communications between devices. It's a matter of which control app you use and whether or not the control app makes it easy or difficult to set up a macro. Right. John, take us home, John. Go ahead. Well, I think, I think uh, the bottom line is people are still going to ask, yeah, but does it work with Alexa? <laughs> That's what they're going to ask, yeah. right? As consumers, I mean, that is, we already have that standard. I mean, I even put my Christmas tree lights behind me on it. I mean, I just plugged in something and then it said, hey, do you want to connect this to... Can you, you know, turn the lights off? John? Can you turn the lights off? Sure, Alexa, turn off string lights. And now it won't work. <laughs> Alexa, turn Alexa. off string lights. I'm saying that you're turning on mine. <laughs> so I did it. So Alexa, turn on the smart home. He only listens to me, man. <laughs> yeah, but you know, um, but I think that to to the point about the macros and everything. Yes, they exist, and there's always been if this then that. You could run on any smart yeah. device. So in theory, you could always do this. But I think what you need and what consumers really want is when you set up your front door lock and then the app says, oh, would you also like to me to turn right. on the lights when you come in and it's after dusk? Right. And then you say, yeah, that's a great idea. And would you like me to play music on Pandora and, and just sort of does it automatically, not like infinite menus and check buttons and yeah, I that's agree. just not going to work. So they so whoever does that is really going to make this stuff happen. And we'll see how fast matter takes off. I mean, some of the big CE companies that will be in Las Vegas, I asked them about it and they said, matter what? Like, so <laughs> there are a lot of these big companies that are like not there yet, not thinking about it. Yeah. So. In a year from now, we'll see where it's at. It'll be interesting um, to see what happens. We'll see if matter matters. You know, right. that's uh, that's my uh, that's my uh, concluding statement on that. But I'll <laughs> see you guys at uh, CES in a couple of weeks. And uh, guys, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for taking the time and joining me for today's podcast. For our viewing <laughs> and listening audience, please play, make the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. And please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week, and I'll see you guys in Las Vegas. Happy holidays. Mm -hmm.